All right, open to Mark chapter 9, and we're going to, we're going to do this tonight by a lot of turning around in Scripture, going different places, probably a little bit more, in fact, probably a lot more than we might normally do on a Wednesday night. I'm going to ask you to, to give me some answers and talk through some things, uh, walk through a couple of kind of basic Bible study methods, tools we need to, need to be aware of. Uh, this story here, the transfiguration in Mark 9, is so many layers, so many things going on in this story in Mark, and so I want you, uh, want you to be aware of those things. All right, let's begin in Mark chapter 9, verse 1. And he said to them, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Now, the reference there to the kingdom of God coming in power sometimes is explained as a future event of Jesus' second coming, but the way it fits here in Mark, and especially this idea that there's some standing there who won't taste death until they see it, we know that it can't be referring solely to a future second coming of Christ. It's either referring immediately to the transfiguration, which seems kind of strange because why would Jesus say some of you standing here won't taste death until you see the kingdom of God and then six days later they see the transfiguration? It doesn't fit. It doesn't kind of fit with that type of statement. Almost certainly what it's referring to is the resurrection of Christ. Um, and if not just the resurrection, you, you might take in all of the post-resurrection appearances of Christ, and, and even more, his ascension at the beginning of Acts back into glory. So when it says, you, some of here won't die until they see the kingdom of God after it's come in power, the most likely reference is to the resurrection. That's not the only possibility, but it, it's probably the most likely that is being referred to. Jesus is saying, you haven't seen yet all of my power, all of my glory. You're going to have a chance to see that. But Assuming it does refer to the resurrection, it's going to also help us kind of make sense of the transfiguration, what's going on here. Now, Bible study 101, not, not, just, not when you're doing maybe just basic devotional reading, reading through scripture, but when you're really studying a passage, one thing you always want to back up and think about is what came before this story. Because Mark chapter 9 isn't just a random, you can't jump in the middle of the river and not think about what came before. So back up to Mark chapter 8 just for a second and start down in verse 27 because you can't really understand the transfiguration unless you've understood what comes right before it. Mark chapter 8 starting in verse 27. Jesus went with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi and on the way he asked his disciples who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Now, that reference there where Peter exclaims, you are the Christ, we see it in the book of Matthew, we see it in other locations, but this is a key turning point in, in the book of Mark, especially because the disciples often don't get it. <laughs> the fact that they get an answer right is a really big deal in, in the Gospels because often they don't get many answers right. So this is a place where this is a key turning point. Peter real, realizes who Jesus is, or he, he's starting to catch a glimpse of it. So verse 31, what happens next? Jesus, 
uh, I should probably mention verse 30 there. He strictly charged them to tell no one about him. That's a common phrasing in the book of Mark. That's something that Mark comes back to a lot, where Jesus will do something amazing, he'll say, but don't tell anybody yet. The purpose behind that is he knows that the time has not yet come for them to understand fully what he's talking about. If they go out and start to spread the word, they go out and start to talk about these things, people aren't fully going to understand what's happening. There's still more to be unveiled. There's more to be displayed before he's ready for them to go out and start. The time's going to come that he's going to say, go and tell everybody. It's just not yet because it's not the right time. And you'll see that same theme in the Gospel of John, uh, but, but especially in Mark. Verse 31, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. He said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man." And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation... Of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father and with the angels. So leading up here, here's Jesus saying, or Peter just says, you're the Christ, the Son of God. He acknowledges this. What Peter can't wrap his mind around is that the way to glory is going to go through suffering. That's the part that Peter can't fathom. Where Jesus tells them in verse 31 that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected. The idea that the Messiah, that the rescuer of God's people would have to suffer was so far beyond anything that Peter can fathom. And what the Gospel of Mark is designed to show is how the path to glory actually leads through suffering. You don't get to go around the valley of the shadow of death. You have, death, you have to go through it. And, and so it's going to unfold like that. But Peter struggles with this. And Peter here represents the disciples. He represents all the people who say, I want the goods at the end. I want the Messiah to come. I want to see that glory. I would really like to avoid the pain in between. Um, I'd like to not have to go through that suffering. So you have that as kind of the setup here. Then you get to chapter 9. He tells them some of you are going to be able to see this kingdom of God come in its power. Verse 2. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. Okay, the reference here to six days and going up on a high mountain, that's <laughs> all right, Beth. At least you're reading the Bible, though. That's a good thing. So uh, you're not pulling a Matt Whitmill and having your phone go off, you know, in the service or anything like that. So, uh, um, Okay, go back to Exodus chapter 24. We can just listen to the scripture. <laughs> That's uh, hurry, David, rescue it. Okay, Exodus chapter 24 is where we have to go back to to see this to see this background. 
what you're going to find really quickly is that the transfiguration scene on the mountain there is paralleled by Moses going up on the mountain in the book of Exodus. Uh, you're gonna, we're going to look at some comparison. One of the things that my wife Amanda loves to do in Bible studies, and I think it's a really good practice, when you're looking at scriptures, if you can ever pull out comparison and contrast charts, and she loves to make charts with multiple columns and say this you know, compares and contrasts with this, if you can do that, it really makes things come alive. And so we're going to do a little bit of that, that comparison and contrast. But go back to Exodus chapter 24. Exodus 24, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Okay, a very small comparison is in Exodus 24, verse 1. It's going to be Moses plus three more named individuals, and then the other elders that are going to come up. You get to the transfiguration. It's Jesus plus three more named individuals that are going to come up on the mountain. So it's your first sign that there's something going on here connecting these two passages together, that, that, that they're, they're tied together. Skip down to verse 12 of, of Exodus 24. The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and wait there that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment which I have written for their instruction. So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua and Moses went up into the mountain of God. And he said to the elders, wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and Ur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. Verse 15. So Moses went up on the mountain and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. In the Gospel of Mark, you almost never get a time reference. It's so, what Mark says is, and immediately. If you read the Gospel of Mark, this happens, and immediately this happens. Tells another story, and immediately this happens. Mark is not one to get time, give time references. So if he says a particular amount of time has passed, there's almost has to be a particular reason why that's the case. The six days reference in Mark 9 kind of keyed the people's minds back to, oh yeah, I remember six days. That's when Moses went up on the mountain. He was up there for six days. So Moses is on the mountain for six days. And on the seventh day, it says at the end of verse 16, on the seventh day, he, the Lord called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Now you go back to Mark chapter 9. You go back to the story. It says in verse 3 of Mark chapter 9 that Jesus' clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with, a Moses, with, with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Again, we have a reference back to Moses. Now you can't miss it because Moses ends up showing up on the mountain of transfiguration. This reference back to Moses. Then Peter jumps in. Rabbi, we're going to talk about this in a second. It's good you're here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He didn't know what to say because he was terrified. Verse 7 of Mark chapter 9. A cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud 
This is my beloved son, listen to him. And looking around, they no longer saw anyone with him but Jesus only. Transfiguration, you have a cloud that overshadows a mountain. For people of the first century who knew their Bible really well, that's exactly what they were going to go back to. They knew a story, they wouldn't have called it the Old Testament, they would have called it the Bible or uh, their scriptures. They knew about a story where a cloud overshadows a mountain. It's the story of Moses. So we know for sure that this story of Moses going up on the mountain is meant to compare with and contrast with what is going to happen to Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. All right, so let's go back to Mark 9 and keep walking through this. After six days, it says in verse 2, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John. What do you know in general, you don't have to get into details, but what do you know in general about Peter, James, and John? What, what do we know about those guys? Do what? Yeah, they're the inner three. There's a wide open joke there available for you about, you know, they were in a really good band together or something like that. But um, the, uh, the idea, though, that they were a part of that inner circle. Jesus had, he ministered to the crowds, he ministered to the 12, he ministered to the three, and then you even get an indication that he refers to John as the beloved disciple, so there may even be some type of special relationship there. But, but definitely these are the inner three, that these are the ones that are, are his core. He, he calls them, he, he does things with them. Uh, where's another time? This is, this is the crucial reference as well. What's another time that Jesus takes these three away with him? Garden of Gethsemane, which is about what? It's about suffering on the way to glory. What happens in the Garden of Gethsemane? Father, if there's any way, let this, pa- this cup pass for me. Like if we can go around suffering and still get to glory, we would prefer that path. Two times in the Gospels, you have Jesus taking these three away. Both times, both times the lesson of the story is you have to go through suffering to get to glory. One shows up at a turning point in Jesus' ministry. The other shows up at the very end of the ministry when all this is coming to fulfillment. So they're both meant to to connect together. Verse 2, he takes Peter, James, and John. He leads them up on a high mountain by themselves. Mountains in Scripture are places of revelation, not book of revelation at the end. They're places of God revealing himself. Uh, just kind of think through some mountains in the Bible that, that come to mind. What are, what are some mountain references that come to mind from Scripture? What's that? Yeah, Ten Commandments. So the, the story we were referencing earlier, Mount Sinai, is, is certainly a core mountain. What are some other mountain scenes that you think of from the Bible? How about the Sermon on the Mount? Yeah, that's a good one, the Sermon on the Mount. So Jesus on the Mount is revealing to his disciples what it means to live as one of his followers. Uh, Noah's boat ends up on a mountain, which becomes a place of God's revelation to his people. Um, Mount Zion is this reference for, throughout Scripture of what's going to be God's ultimate dwelling place, his ultimate fulfillment. You don't think about this, but I'll, 
we'll, we'll study it at some point. I'll show you. The Garden of Eden is actually located on a mountain. In our minds, like in my mind, whatever picture I think of as the Garden of Eden, we always put it in a valley. It's actually on a mountain when you begin to kind of see the way that the story is, is shaped together, which means that your Bible is meant to go from mountain to mountain, from the mountain of the Garden of Eden to God's final dwelling place on Mount Zion with his people as he draws everybody to the new creation, the new Jerusalem. And so when you think about going through a valley and back up to a mountain, that's how the whole Bible is shaped, from mountain through valleys to a final to a final mountain. So mountains are always places of God's revelation, the way that he shows his glory to his people. Um, when it says there in verse 2 that he was transfigured before them, it's, if you said the Greek word out loud using kind of English references, it's the word metamorphosis. Uh, so it's a, it's a changing, not of the individual, but of the glory of the individual. So first you had your little... Uh, cocoon and then you have your little butterfly that comes and so you have this metamorphosis obviously they wouldn't have thought of it in the ancient world in that way but it's a changing it's it's a revealing that here's the key here's what I want to say from that Jesus when he's transfigured for the disciples he doesn't become something different than what he was before that's the key it's not as if he's changing forms uh what he is doing, in a sense, is peeling back the layers, you might say, uh, where he's uh, taken on flesh. He's, he's wrapped himself in human flesh, yet still remaining fully God. In this transfiguration, in a sense, you can think of like pulling back the layers, seeing him for who he truly is, revealing his glory that is going to be displayed. So that's the language of, of transfiguration here. Verse 3, his clothes become radiant intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them. Why would that reference at the end of verse 3 be interesting there? As no one on earth could bleach them? What's, what's the perfect purpose of that reference, do you think? It's purity, specifically a God-given purity, a purity that you couldn't attain on your own. Um, white here is uh, white clothes or references in Revelation to acts of righteousness, so it's a reference to purity, specifically a God-given purity. No one on earth could actually make you pure that way. Which, you think about the Gospel of Mark. Remember, the Gospel of Mark includes lots of these conversations with the Pharisees about what it means to be pure. Um, the Pharisees are trying to make themselves pure by, by obeying the law. And Jesus says, you're actually just, you're cleaning the cup, but it's not really getting clean. Or you're whitewashing the tomb but it's on the outside, but you're not actually pure. Uh, so there's a purity here that only comes from a divine source, can only come from the Lord's work, which, which you're seeing happen here in verse 3. Then you get to verse 4. Here come these characters. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. What do you know about Elijah and Moses that would, would make these... Uh, why did they show up? What do, what do you know about them that would be reasons that they would show up here on the, on the mountain? Just kind of your general take on those two figures.
Yeah, so Moses had access to a guy that was, was pretty privileged. Um, look back the first, right before, uh, go back to the book of Malachi. So, not on accident that it's right before your Bible transitions to the New Testament. So find the first page of Matthew in your Bible. Find the first page of Matthew and turn a page to left and you'll get to Malachi. So look at Malachi chapter 4 when you get there. Malachi chapter 4, um, and, and if your Bible does the whole little subheading things, I don't, some phones it shows up, some it doesn't, but if you have a hard copy and it, it has those subheadings, it may say something like the great day of the Lord or the coming day of the Lord. It's going to have some reference to that. Malachi chapter 4, behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. The day of the Lord's coming will be a day of separating the sheep from the goats, of revealing, this is key, of revealing what is true. Of, of revealing God's judgment, revealing God's glory, revealing God's salvation. Look what happens in verse 4. Who shows up? Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Don't look ahead. Who might show up next after Moses? Oh, yeah, look who shows up. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with the decree of utter destruction. So you see, Mount of Transfiguration, Moses and Elijah show up. And remember, these people know their Bible hundreds of times better than, than we're going to know these references. What are they going to go back to? They know exactly what's going on here. Here come these two figures that have always been identified with God's coming plan, what he's going to do to bring judgment and salvation to his people. So uh, Moses will come, Elijah will come. If you're Peter, James, and John at this point, and you're on a mountain, and you see Elijah and Moses show up standing next to Jesus, you're pretty sure something big is happening. Like God is showing that my plan is coming to fulfillment. This is all going to come to its conclusion. So they're sitting there talking to Jesus in verse 4. Verse 5, Peter turns around and says to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, for he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. You know, it's a little... Certainly one of those situations in Scripture, you don't want to pick on Peter uh, because there's other times that, that he really does well and says these incredible things and acts in faith. Something about this doesn't seem right, especially when Mark turns around in verse 6. You almost get the feeling 
you almost get the feeling Mark is trying to apologize for Peter on his behalf. He didn't really mean to say that. He just didn't know what to say because he was scared. Um, where did Mark get most of his material for his gospel? From Peter. Peter is the source for Mark's gospel. So you can imagine Peter telling this story to Mark. This is what I said. You can write it down, but I really just said that because I was scared and I didn't know what else to say. Um, he, he, so he's apologizing on his own behalf, maybe, when he's telling the story to Mark. Why does he say, let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah? Go back to your Old Testament knowledge. What comes to mind when you think about tent in the, uh, in the Old Testament? Festivals, you have the festival of booths as the people are going through the, uh, through the wilderness and they're, they're having to live in tents because they don't have structures. Yeah, that's, a lot of scholars think that this passage is tied to the festival of booths that you find um, in the Old Testament. And, and there probably have to be some connections between the two. What are, what's another reference to tent in the Old Testament? Almost certainly that's what this is going back to. Because what's the tabernacle in the Old Testament? It's the dwelling place of God. It's where, it's where he d displays his glory, where he places his presence. Um, now, if that's the case, okay, so if that's the case that the tent was a dwelling place, a place of, of God's presence and power, what could potentially be a problem with Peter saying, hey, let's get a tent for you and Moses and Elijah. What's potentially the problem there? He is, a, in a sense, putting them on the same plane, the, the, same, uh, the same level, so to speak. Um, now, we know that Jesus, the Savior, is not prideful in the sense of, hey, I'm too good to live in a tent. That's not the idea. The problem with Peter's reckoning of the situation seems to be like, hey, here's three great guys that the Lord loves hanging out together, which is true to a sense, but, but not, not in the same way. Uh, John chapter 1, maybe, maybe it's even worth, we'll, we'll turn over just for a second, Look at, remind yourself of, of John chapter 1 here. There's a very particular, particular reference. Um, John chapter 1, verse 14. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Dwelt is the idea of like took up residence in a tent, uh, pitched his tent among us. So he, he displayed his glory by taking on flesh. Peter's problem back in Mark chapter 9 is, um, as Carol said, almost puts them on an, an even playing field. That, that, hey, you guys are all the same. Let's pinch, pitch a tent. Divine presence comes here. So what happens after Peter says that in Mark chapter 9? After he says that in Mark chapter 9, in verse 7, a cloud overshadowed them and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son, Listen to him. Okay, take what Carol said in reference to the three tents. Take this voice coming from heaven. 
What's the significance of what the Lord is saying at, at this point? Yeah, I love Moses and Elijah, like really important guys. They're, they played a key role in my, my story, and they're, they're with me. Uh, they're not my son. This is my son. Listen to him. Uh, two, two places I want us to go really quickly. One Old Testament, one deeper in the New Testament. Old Testament, go back to Deuteronomy chapter 18. Deuteronomy chapter 18. If you look in verse 15, so Deuteronomy 18, verse 15, once again, if your Bible does subheadings in it, it's probably going to say a new prophet like Moses or another prophet to come. Deuteronomy 18, 15. The Lord your God, this is, this is Moses speaking, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire lest I die. Um, verse 15 there, when it says the Lord will raise up another prophet, it's to him you shall listen. The voice from heaven in Mark chapter 9 is keen right back to this because Deuteronomy 18.15 was a prophecy that lived on with Israel all the way along. The history of Israel is looking for the prophet like Moses who would come that would be greater than Moses. So all along in the history of, remember, uh, we don't think about Moses oftentimes as a prophet. We, we tend to think of Moses in reference to the law, and then you have the prophets later in Scripture. In the history of Israel, Moses is the great prophet who gives the word of the Lord. All the later prophets are building on the word that Moses gave. Um, so there's, it's always building on that. So they were always looking for who that next prophet, who, who were they supposed to listen to? The Lord is like, you can't mess this up in Mark chapter 9. This is my son. Listen to him. You see another interesting reference is if you go over to the book of Hebrews. Uh, so Hebrews is deep in the New Testament. You get past Paul's letters, and you go to Hebrews chapter, um, chapter 1. You know, actually go to chapter 3. It's, it's clear in chapter 3. You get the same concept, but it makes more sense in Hebrews chapter 3. Okay, so Hebrews chapter 3. Listen to the references that are made here. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to the one who appointed him, meaning his father, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. Verse 3 of Hebrews chapter 3. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, and indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. You think about that Mark chapter 9 transfiguration story, 
Moses and Elijah were incredible servants of the Lord, did what the Lord called them to do, carried out this role. They were not the son of God. The one who would come would be Jesus, the Messiah, the son of God, who would draw all people to himself. So what you get in Mark chapter 9 is you get this tying together of Deuteronomy 18 with the glory of Christ that would be shown through his life and death and resurrection. And then the author of Hebrews helps us kind of bring that all back together. Moses was a great servant. Jesus was the son of God. If you go back to Mark chapter 9, I know we're all over the place. It's hard to get back there. Uh, But if you go back to Mark chapter 9, this reference to a voice coming out of the cloud, this is my beloved son, listen to him. Where else can you think of a place in the New Testament that something like that happens? Baptism, yeah. Jesus' baptism, the language is almost identical there. The only difference for the baptism scene is it says in Mark chapter 1, Listen to this as you're looking at Mark 9. So in Mark chapter 1, talking about the baptism of Jesus, a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Mark chapter 9, this is my beloved son, listen to him. So the baptism reference, God speaks directly to Jesus. You are my beloved son. He's confirming him in that place, in that call. Mark chapter 9 He's speaking almost to the disciples. More, he's not speaking directly to Jesus. He's speaking to the disciples. Remember who this is. This is my son. Listen to him. Okay. Listen to him about what? Listen to him say what? Well, certainly all of his teaching, all of his ministry. But what have they not gotten up to this point? What are, what are they struggling to hear from Jesus? That we referred to a second ago um, at the end of Mark 8. What, what are they having trouble listening to? Do what? Yeah. Yeah, the idea he's going to die. The idea he's going to suffer. They, they can't hear that. Um, all they can think of is how could the Messiah die? How could the Messiah suffer? This screws up all the plans. And so God has to speak to them and say, this is my son. He's going to tell you what's going to happen. If he says, says he's going to suffer and die, he's going to suffer and die. But don't worry, you just saw his glory revealed. So what God is doing to them simultaneously, this seems to be the function of the transfiguration story. What he's doing is simultaneously he's saying, the son is going to suffer and you're going to suffer. But let me assure you that's not the end of the story. I'm going to even show you a glimpse of his glory so that you will know that this suffering and death is not the end of the story. You tie that in with the resurrection, the whole story is, oh, he died. Not the end of the story, resurrection. You take that concept and you apply it to our lives, what is the Lord constantly speaking to us about? Yes, you live in a world of sin. Yes, you live in a world of suffering. Yes, you live in a world where there's death and pain, and it's not the end of the story. I've already shown you my resurrection. Remember when the New Testament refers to the resurrection, it refers to it as the first fruits. What was true about Jesus will be true of all of his people. He's shown his glory through his death and resurrection. That same glory, that same power will be shown to his people through the future resurrection where he brings all people back 
uh, from the dead to be before the Father. And so those two ideas being, being tied together here, um, it ends in verse 8, almost borderline humor, as much humor as sometimes we get in, the, uh, in certain references in the Bible. Mark chapter 9, verse 8, suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. So, as if to say, the only one left standing is Jesus. Look at him. You can't miss the point of Moses and Elijah are great. Here's the one you need to look at. Here's the one you need to listen. Then they have to go off the mountain and continue on with the journey. There's another interesting thing that happens with the transfiguration. Is to compare and contrast Mark 9 with the crucifixion of Jesus, what happens to Jesus at the end of his end of his life. If you back up here just for a second and, and you think about the difference, Mark chapter 9, verse 2, after six days, how long does the Passion Week last? It's essentially six days leading up to, to the time of the crucifixion. He takes with him Peter, James, and John, and they're led up to a high mountain. What do we generally think of the crucifixion happening? On a hill, on a mountain, so to, so to speak. Um, the difference is transfiguration is more of a private event. Only a few people see that. Crucifixion is a public spectacle. It's designed by the Romans to be seen by as many people as, as possible. Uh, so what is a private affair, so to speak, in Mark 9 is a public spectacle at the crucifixion. In the transfiguration, Jesus is surrounded by two of the great prophets of the Old Testament. Who's he surrounded by at the crucifixion? Two thieves, two, two sinners. Transfiguration, Jesus is surrounded by two of the great men of all of history. Crucifixion, he's surrounded by two criminals, for lack of a better a better reference. Um, transfiguration, what happens to Jesus' garments? They glow, they're beautiful, they're white. What happens to Jesus' garments in the crucifixion? Torn, sold, completely different situation. Transfiguration, Jesus has three men with him who struggle to get it. Resurrection, he reveals himself first to three women who get it and go tell other people. Uh, so you have a contrast between the audience of these three men who don't get it in Mark 9 and three women who do get it in Mark 16 and go and, and tell other people. Uh, transfiguration, a divine voice from heaven says, this is my son. Who speaks most notably at the crucifixion of Jesus. Who do you remember speaking at the crucifixion? Jesus speaks. Who else speaks? There's a Roman centurion who recognizes who Jesus is. Transfiguration, a divine voice from heaven says this is who Jesus is. He's the son. Crucifixion, you have a Roman centurion who recognizes who Jesus is, maybe the most, most likely um, person to, to get that. So 
We already talked about transfiguration as showing his glory, resurrection power. Crucifixion is showing that glory, resurrection is only going to come through suffering. Transfiguration is a scene of glory. Crucifixion is a scene of agony and pain. And so you can see kind of how those two, two stories hang together, that comparison and contrast that happens there. Mostly, mostly what I want you to see is summed up, and we're going to read these verses and be finished, in, back in Hebrews. So if you go back to Hebrews one more time, I want to show you a couple of verses in Hebrews chapter 2, and they'll make, they'll make quick sense after what we talked about already. But Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2, starting in verse 10. It was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation I will sing your praise. And again I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Verse 14, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest and the servant of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. The story of Scripture is that the path to glory always leads through suffering. The path to resurrection always leads through the cross, um, which is good to know that the Lord is our shepherd. And that when we go through the valley of the shadow of death, we don't have to be afraid because he's with us. Um, and so I hope that when you think about the transfiguration story, you'll say, I see the glory. I believe Jesus is the son of God. I believe he's overcome sin and death. Even in the middle of what I'm facing right now, I can trust in him because I know, I know who he is and I know what he's done for me. All right, let's pray and we'll, we'll be finished. God, thank you again for the way that Scripture fits together. Um, God, not, not, a piece, uh, not a bunch of disconnected stories, but the way that you have given us your word, where these stories, even the language of the stories, the details of the stories tie together uh, from moment to moment. Father, thank you for a story like the Transfiguration that can sometimes seem like a head-scratcher when we first, we first look at it, but how core it is to the message of the Bible, uh, that we live in a world where there is great suffering, uh, both, both personal suffering and suffering all around us as a result of sin, but we also believe that this is not the end of the story, that because of Christ's life and death and resurrection, that there's hope both in the midst of what we're facing and beyond it. God, thank you for the way that we are reminded that, of that as a church that even as we go through difficulty and suffering, we remind one another of the hope that we have in you. And so, Father, I pray that you would continue to strengthen and encourage us with that reminder of, of the good news that's found in Christ alone. And we pray this in his name. Amen.
All right, thank you for being here tonight. We'll see you, uh, see you on Sunday.